Hello, this is Leslie Gorfotenzer, and this is Law to Fact. We've invited Ryan Williams of Mitchell Hamlin School of Law back to talk about subject matter jurisdiction. In this episode, Professor Williams explains clearly and concisely subject matter jurisdiction. CivPro seems to be giving listeners a bit of a difficult time, and so we're sending this out to you as our last substantive love letter as you head into the final, final exam period. If you're listening to Law of Fact, chances are at some point you'll be taking the bar exam. Well, getting ready for the bar exam means you'll need to choose the study program that's right for you. Kaplan Bar Review will get you ready to take on test day with confidence by offering $100 off live and on-demand bar review with offer code LESLIE100. Visit www.kaplanbarreview.com today to sign up. Okay, time is short because I know you're studying. Let's get right to it. Here's my discussion with Professor Williams on subject matter jurisdiction. What is subject matter jurisdiction? Uh, subject matter jurisdiction is the court's right to hear a particular case. Right? The court has to have subject matter jurisdiction, so they have to have the ability over the, the subject of what you're talking about. Um, so there's usually two types in terms of civil procedure that we care about. Um, you're going to be in state court or federal court. So the court has to have subject matter jurisdiction over your state court case, and most cases can go in state court, whether it's divorce court or probate court. You could go to different types of courts, but in most cases, whatever you're suing about as a plaintiff, it qualifies for state court, um, unless it's bankruptcy or water law or something like that. Um, but federal court, it's a privilege to be in federal court, right? And so federal court, they don't take just any case. So if the plaintiff wants to be in federal court, they actually have to prove that they belong in federal court and state in the, like in the first page of their complaint why they deserve to be in federal court, why they qualify for federal court. And there's uh, two main ways I guess plaintiffs can qualify for federal court. Uh, if their case is about federal issues, right? If it's involving a federal question, well then yes, you get to be in federal court. Your case involves federal issues. Um, the other main way, the most common way um, people get into federal court is if they're diverse from one another. It's called diversity of citizenship. All that means is the plaintiff and the defendant are from different states. And the case has to be for more than $75,000. Uh, the federal court doesn't like to hear small cases. And uh, the number used to be 25000 and then 50000 They keep raising it. Now it's 75000 And if it's less than 75000 you know, the federal court doesn't want to hear it. Go to state court. But if it's more than that and they're diverse, then you can get, uh, get to go to federal court. Great. All right. Well, so I have two questions. So the first question is, why would someone want to be in federal court over state court? Uh, that's a great question. It's not like patently obvious. Uh, so I'll go two reasons. Uh, one, uh, I guess probably the main reason is sometimes plaintiffs worried about getting hometown. Uh, for example, uh, a plaintiff is out of state and they, they, you know, get into an accident in the current state or they harm some business in, in the defendant's home state. So they sue the defendant in the defendant's home state. Uh, they might be worried that this judge will be partial to the defendant because state court judges are elected. Federal court oh. judges are appointed hmm. by the executive branch. And so state court judges, they run for re-election. And they, local businesses sometimes donate to their campaigns. And so state court judges 
you know, it's not supposed to work this way, right? But there's a, a fear of bias that the state court judge might side with the party who's from that state and might, you know, as the plaintiff, if you might get hometowned, as we say, by a state court judge who's partial to the defendant you're suing if the defendant's from that state. And so if you're from out of state and you have a case for more than 75 grand, you might want to sue the defendant in federal court. Federal court judges are appointed. They don't have to run for re-election or be concerned even in the back of their mind about uh, local business and things of that nature for re-election. So uh, that's one reason you don't you don't want to get hometown as the plaintiff. Okay. Um, another reason could be um, it can be just faster. Federal court sometimes is faster than state court. Sometimes state courts are backed up. And plaintiffs usually uh, want their the civil cases are often about money or some type of resolution like that. And plaintiffs want their money sooner rather than later. So if it can go faster, I want to sue in the court where it goes faster. Interesting. All right. So then my second question, one of the ways you can get in federal court, you said, was if you have diversity of citizenship and the um, cause of action is over $75,000. So let's say I'm from New York and I hit somebody who is from New Jersey and um, I total their $100,000 Mercedes. Does federal court automatically have to take me, or does it mean that I have the option to even be considered by a federal court for hearing the case? I'm going to say yes to both. Right? <laughs> so you, I'll start with the second one first. Um, the plaintiff has the option. You can sue wherever you like, state or federal court, usually. And so the plaintiff can pick state court if they want to. But in that scenario, the plaintiff is from New York, the defendant's from New Jersey, so different states. The amount of controversy is $100,000, so it's more than $75,000. And so if the plaintiff wants to sue then in federal court, the federal court has to take them because they qualify for federal court. Okay. And so it's, it's interesting because it sounds so ominous, this idea of subject matter jurisdiction, but it seems so obvious. Yes, it's it's uh, both at the same time, I think, right? Um, so it it's a lot of law when you start properties and other classes like foreign, you know, words and civil procedure has a lot of foreign words like jurisdiction and subject matter jurisdiction, which sounds big and fancy and a little scary. But and federal court is sometimes fancier than state court. I, I in my experience, you have little nicer buildings. Judges have a little longer robes, you know, um, mm -hmm. federal court, but. Uh, but really, it's just who's going to hear your case. No judge wants to be overturned on appeal. And so their judges are generally trying to get it right. right? Yeah. But we do have people, sometimes plaintiffs are worried, since judges in state court have to run for re-election, they are worried about getting hometown. Or you might, it might just be, you have the reputation for being a faster court. Like this federal court turns over cases quickly. Maybe I want to go there for that reason. So then as a, as a 1L, I guess you're taught subject matter jurisdiction and impersonum jurisdiction. What's the difference between them? So subject matter jurisdiction is jurisdiction over the subject matter of the case. And impersonum jurisdiction, I'm just, just going to translate for jurisdiction over the person. Mm -hmm. And so can the court, so can the New York court, whether you're in state court, New York, or federal court in New York, can the New York court system in general, do they have jurisdiction over you as the person? 
And the answer is yes, if you have at least some minimum contact with the state of New York. And and in order to be heard, you have to the court has to have both subject matter and impersonum jurisdiction. Is that an accurate statement? That is an accurate statement. Yes, both types of jurisdiction the court has to have. So you have to have both. All right. So I'm a law student. I get a CivPro exam. What kind of things might I want to look at, look for, I should say, on the exam to tip me off that I need to make sure I have subject matter jurisdiction? Um, anytime you're reading a fact pattern and they're giving you where the plaintiff is from and where the defendant is from, and I'm like, why are you telling me that? Like, I don't need to know that unless I'm trying to get into court based on diversity. Usually I don't need to know that unless there's some jurisdictional issue at play. And if they tell you the amount that's being sued for, uh, usually that's a, a big clue that subject matter jurisdiction is in play on that question. Um, yeah, those are, those are two basic things. There's offshoots of subject matter jurisdiction like removal as well, but those are some basic things to look for. So what's the issue with removal? Uh, well, that's when the plaintiff sues the defendant in state court. They want to be in state court, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's totally fine usually. But since the plaintiffs get to choose so many things in the law, right, the plaintiff gets to choose who to sue, what to sue about, the plaintiff gets to pick the court, we give defendants a little carrot, we give defendants the right to take cases that were filed in state court and take them, remove them to federal court, and that's actually called removal. And so if a, def so if a plaintiff sues a defendant in state court, the defendant, without asking the plaintiff's permission, can remove the case to federal court, can literally file a, a brief and a motion and just take the case to federal court as long as the case qualifies for subject matter jurisdiction in federal court. So going back to my hypothetical with the um, car accident, if mm -hmm. I, the plaintiff, sue the defendant in New York State, and the defendant doesn't want it to be New York State, that defendant can then request that it gets removed to federal court because that defendant has both, uh, or our case, I should say, has both diversity of citizenship and it's for a claim over $75,000. That's right. The defendant could remove the lawsuit to federal court in New York and not be in New York State court. Right? So as a practical matter, how often does this happen? Uh, quite a bit. Really? Um, and in that scenario, like, you might be worried that the, the defendant might be worried, okay, the plaintiff, we got into a car accident in New York, um, the judges, you know, are tired of these bad drivers from New Jersey, and so I don't want to be in New York State Court. I mean, I'll be sued in New York. I'll go to New York for the lawsuit. That's fine. They can have personal jurisdiction over me because uh, the, the accident happened there, so they do, but I don't want to be in state court. I want to be in federal court in New York where the judges don't have to worry about that kind of thing. So, Got it. And then, of course, and that's kind of beyond the scope of this discussion, but then it's a question of whether the federal court applies state law, right? Um, yes, and that maybe trickling into choice of law and eerie type analysis, which now that is a little scary. Uh, so <laughs> Very scary. We do have a podcast on eerie. You're safe. <laughs> okay, okay. No, and we can do that, but that is another discussion. That's at least another half hour. Um, usually... Uh, the state law where they're sitting, and it's usually not a big deal. Perfect. All right. Anything else that students should know about subject matter jurisdiction? 
Um, other than it is, it's commonly tested. Um, and I guess citizenship, that's another way that it's tested. Because like we're all, where we're born, we start out citizens of the state where we're born. That's our domicile. So like if you're born in New York, you're a citizen of New York for the purposes of subject matter jurisdiction until you do two things. You move to another state and you intend to remain there permanently. So I'm going to take me. I, am, I was born in New Jersey. And then when I was 18, I moved to Florida to go to college. But, you know, I came home on weekends. I ended up staying in Florida for seven years, but I would come home. So I'd still be a citizen of New Jersey in that scenario, correct? Yes, for the mo most likely, yes. College is by definition um, four years, some of us five or six, right? But most mm -hmm. four years, and it's going to be temporary. It's not going to be permanent. So even though you don't live in New Jersey anymore, all those years you were in Florida for college, you were still a citizen of New Jersey for the purposes, if you got into a lawsuit for the purposes of subject matter jurisdiction. And then I'm going to contrast that. Let's say that instead... I'm 18 years old and I decide to move to New Jersey for my dream job. No, I'm sorry. I'm leaving New Jersey, moving to Florida for my dream job. I end up only being there for two years, but it was my intent to move there to kind of stay there. Then in that case, I would have been a citizen of Florida, correct? Or do I have to like do something like change my driver's license or pay taxes from there? Um, it's, it's sort of both. You probably would be a citizen of Florida. One of the ways we look at your subjective intent to stay there indefinitely is to look at um, external factors. Like you said, did you change your driver's license? Did you register to vote in Florida? Did you buy property there? Did you do anything to indicate some permanence? And so if you say you want to do, you know, you intended to stay there and then you took steps to further that, even if you don't end up staying there, you probably effectively changed your domicile to Florida. And then going forward, you're a citizen of Florida. So how, how would a exam hypo, how would you envision an exam hypo that dealt with citizenship and diversity? And what would you say? Well, it it's people from one state. We can use New York and New Jersey again, but you know, in our, in our car example, that defendant from New Jersey, let's say they're living in New Jersey, um, but they, they're from New York and maybe they're just in New Jersey for college or they just got a new job in New Jersey and they're testing it out and they don't know what they think, mm -hmm. right? And so the plaintiff filed in state court in New York and they sued someone who lives in New Jersey, but really they haven't changed their domicile to New Jersey yet. They're still a New York citizen. And so on the question, the defendant tries to remove the case to federal court in New York using diversity of citizenship. And you have to say, I know the defendant lives in New Jersey now, but the plaintiff and defendant aren't actually diverse because the defendant really didn't change their citizenship to New Jersey. It's still New York. And so since plaintiff and defendant are both from the same state, they don't qualify for federal court. So the defendant can't remove the case to federal court. Aha. Uh -huh. So I guess you're going to look for somebody trying to say they live in one place when they really are living in another. That might be another question yeah. to kind of alert yourself. Terrific. Absolutely. All right. This is, yeah. I'm 
I'm so happy to hear something straightforward and understandable. <laughs> Must Very be you. You did a great job. Yeah. <laughs> great. Um, I always like to ask my guests when we have a little time, if there's one piece of advice you'd like to give law students. Mm, new law students. Um, don't treat it like college or high school. Um, even if what you've been doing is, and it's hard, right? Because what you've been doing for the last eight years has worked well for you. Law school is different. It requires more time. You'll probably have to see your professors. It's a smart idea, rather, to see your professors in office hours and to spend more time on things than you're used to, to be more organized than you're used to. Uh, people that go to law school are achievers, like by definition. So you've been doing well, but now we're in the land of all achievers, and it's like a different legal language. Um, the, the top people on law review and things, see your professors, go to office hours, ask for help, even if you've never needed it before, now it's a good time, time to do that. So. Wonderful. I love that. The land of all achievers. That's terrific. Well, yeah, thank you. so. <laughs> it's great. Thank you. It's like the land of make-believe. Can you go to the land of all achievers? And we're, and we're there. We're there so <laughs> Perfect. Fine. Thanks so much again for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. Then that's our discussion for today on summary judgment. Hope it was helpful. Once again, best of luck on finals. These are for 1Ls, but these topics are also great for those of you who are about to take the bar in February or taking the bar in July. And as a reminder, if you're about to take the bar, you can sign up with Kaplan at www.kaplan.com. Use code Leslie100 and you'll save $100 on the cost of bar review. Thank you again for joining us. Please give us feedback, like us, subscribe, send us any requests you may have at lawdefact.gmail.com. Once again, a reminder that Kaplan Bar Review is offering you $100 off their live and on-demand bar review program. Just use Leslie100 as your code when you sign on at www.kaplanbarreview.com. Once again, best of luck as you finish final season, and we'll see you next week on Law Fact.